Clinical trials are crucial for advancing medical treatments and discovering new modalities that can improve patient outcomes. But the process of recruiting participants for these trials can be challenging, which can lead to treatments and potential solutions not reaching the patients who need them most. How do we encourage more people to participate in clinical trials? And how can we overcome the traditional recruitment methods and reach an even larger pool of potential candidates? And what role does technology play in improving the clinical research and trial process? With me today on the show is Ben McAvoy from Avrima, who are on a mission to use technology to improve pathways to participation in clinical research and trials. In this episode, we talk about the challenges of recruiting participants for clinical trials, the role of technology in expanding recruitment reach, and strategies for engaging clinicians and patients in clinical trial opportunities. And a lot more too. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Join me in Amsterdam from the 17th to the 20th of June for Health Europe, the region's most important healthcare event. I'm so pumped I'm going to be there with over 3,500 delegates and speakers from around the world, including a big crew of Aussies as well. I'll tell you what, it's going to be a big week. Make sure you're there to catch me live on stage, capturing insights from speakers and recording interviews for The Beat by Health. So make sure you're there, hunt me down and say g'day or hello or whatever we say in Amsterdam. If you've not got your ticket, there's still time. Use the coupon code and the link in the show notes of this episode for your discounted ticket. Yep. G'day, Ben. How are you going? G'day, Pete. I'm very well. How are you? Really good. It's good to have you on the Talking Health Tech podcast because it's been a while since we've uh, connected with anyone from Avrima on the show. Back in episode 94, we had Charlotte on and we can certainly reflect on what's happened since then. Although there's been a fair bit of engagement in the THT Plus community as Avrima remembers and also Charlotte's appeared on um, a few of our summit sessions as well. But it's great to have have you on the pod today. Tell us a bit more about who you are and, and what you do at Avrima. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, um, it's been fantastic to be engaged uh, with Charlotte. I've been working with her for a number of years. Um, my background is in technology, so I, uh, I used to be a nerd. My father was a doctor, um, and uh, so I like to say that my my experience in health tech began fixing dad's PC back when I was a, a teenager. Um, he was an early adopter of, of technology in his practice, but uh, uh, you know you, you always need a little bit help from the, from your tech savvy sons to make sure the printer's working and so on. Um, uh, between then and now, uh, I've been um, leading software development teams now for the last uh, software development and technical teams for the last twenty years or so. I've been delivering a range of different systems, including health tech systems, into the UK market, North America, and obviously the Australian market. Uh, I spent some time uh, leading the engineering team at Medical Director, for example, for a while. And that's actually how I got connected to Charlotte. So I was very active in the health tech scene in Sydney. Um, and she was looking for uh, somebody to help her with the technical side of her startup back in uh, 2020. Um, and we got connected uh, uh, that way. And I've been part of the Avrima story ever since. Well, good good um, knowledge of the particular the GP market, both from the... Um experience with the practice management system medical director but it's funny you say that you know you, you, your dad was the gp and you were the the tech person because back when i was a vendor 
you know, working with GP clinics, the most common tech person that we deal with at the clinic was usually the son or the daughter that was uh, yep. like yep, taking Yeah, so there you go. We <laughs> maybe in another time we would have we would have set up your uh, practice management system. But um, so so yeah. So out of Vrima now, for those that aren't fully familiar with uh, what Vrima does in the space it operates in, give us the give us the gist. So Vrima, it's the uh, the ancient Greek word for discovery. So that's where the name comes from. Um, and uh, it was born out of, uh, Charlotte was involved in um, or, or became aware of clinical research uh, and it, some time ago, and she kind of identified this niche in the market where there's a problem with uh, clinical trials in particular. Um, the number one problem with clinical research, uh, this is just globally, is just finding people to participate in clinical trials. So um, if you, you look at all the surveys conducted, you go to any of these conferences, the number one issue is somewhere between 80 and 90% of all clinical research in the world is either delayed or cancelled because they just can't find enough people to participate wow. in the research. Everyone was founded to, to address that problem and to yeah. try to look for innovative ways to apply technology to the, to the issue of, of clinical trial um, recruitment. So I, I, we, we were talking just before we began recording about um, Marvel uh, movies, for example. So one of the okay. biggest challenges that we find is public perception, right? So yeah. I, I say sometimes it's a rumor against um, Captain America, right? Yeah. Um, if, you, if you think about the way that clinical research is portrayed on screen, so um, I, I went back and had a look at um, Captain America, for example, and mm. here's, a, here's a guy who, who begins out a very weedy bloke and he gets the magic serum injected into him and he becomes a superhero, right? Fantastic outcome. But how is the, the process of that clinical research actually portrayed on screen? Well, inevitably, somebody's strapped into uh, a steel table on, uh, you know, in some yeah. horrible space. There's some evil people in the in the shadows off to the side with the white coats on, yeah. and they're injecting somebody with some green goop, you know, and and inevitably the person's screaming and writhing around in pain and agony. Right? That's mm. that's a very oh, always at the last second wanted to get out of it too. It's like, oh no, no, no wait, wait, and then and then yeah, it, yeah, yeah, almost yeah. always against their will, yeah. um, or if not against their will, at least they're enduring horrible pain and, yeah. and, and horrible trepidation. Right? So. So um, there is a public perception issue, and, and Marvel oh. perpetuates that. I think of Wolverine as well, you know, yeah. being injected with That's steel true. and he's drowning and screaming. You know, it's, it's a pretty common portrayal. And so um, the, the public perception of participation in clinical research is, is probably pretty poor. If you go and ask somebody on the street, you know, um, tell me what that, that feels like or it might, what it might be like. Um, it, it's, you know, it feels like a very risky prospect. It feels like it might be painful or dangerous. Um, where there's nothing could be further from the truth in reality. Um, I, I think of also the Simpsons, you know, the three-headed fish and, you know, all yep. this kind of stuff as well. There's, there's heaps of portrayals like that. So the reality is that um, we have to overcome that public perception issue. Uh, and, and I sometimes talk about um, donating blood, for example. So whatever reason, the idea of donating blood is very popular. People think of it as a selfless thing that they can do. Um, they go to a clinic, they get a needle put in their arm. Um, it's not particularly comfortable, it's not particularly fun. Some people faint or pass out or whatever, but they're willing to do it. You know, donating blood is a selfless thing that can be done to benefit the community. Um, and that's not very dissimilar to what you might experience as being part of a clinical trial, right? In, in fact, often it doesn't involve any needles at all. It's, uh, you know, you're taking a, a compound or a new, uh, you know, just a tablet. So it's a lot less invasive. But for some reason, uh, for this public perception issue of, of clinical research being something that's kind of dangerous. 
Um, yeah. So we have some um, work to do there to change public perception. Uh, and we're working on that. And I guess the other part is um, just bringing the awareness of clinical research to the market, so to the general population, but also to clinicians. So um, you mentioned I had some experience in general practice and primary care. When you go and look at the research, somewhere between 0.2%, that's two-tenths of 1%, uh, and other research shows always less than, always single-figure digits yeah. of clinical trial participants are referred by a primary care physician, for example. So yeah, right. these are the people that you speak to first in your healthcare journey, um, but there's no connection between that point of care and, and potential participation in clinical research. So bringing the information about clinical trials to clinicians in a form that they can consume easily, um, that they're able to understand and communicate to their patients as a potential care option. Um, that's a challenge as well. Uh, and then there is just the complexity of moving um, potential participants and candidates through what is a, a complex and sometimes difficult to understand eligibility process yeah. um, of just qualifying participants and, and getting them actually enrolled on a trial. And we think there's a place for technology in all of that. Um, and, and that's what Avrima's been found yeah. to, to do is to, to solve those problems. The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years, all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help, yes you, to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness. 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around, I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach, and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or ten minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well. I think about that part a lot, actually, the uh, fact that by the very nature, clinical trials need to have a robust process for selection and criteria and eliminating candidates because, as I understand, doing a clinical trial in a particular subset to be able to demonstrate in a particular use case, right, rather than, oh, just anyone can, can they're not being difficult for the sake of it. It's it's to provide evidence in the end for, for in an industry that is always evidence-led. And so, so we need all this evidence that's usually come out of clinical trials and, and uh, clinical research to then demonstrate the effectiveness of a particular um, treatment or modality or whatever it might be. But oh. I think about that, you know, and, and uh, especially through some of the other podcast series we've been recording through Talking Health Tech, there's the MScan Spot On podcast, which is all around the skin cancer side. And, and, and a lot of the topics that we've talked about on that particular show have been around, you know, encouraging the participation in clinical trials and uh, how, uh, and there's been so many great patient stories of- oh. Um, how how lucky and grateful they feel for for finding and and discovering. It almost feels like they've 
uncovered something that that was really difficult to find this clinical trial that given them access to something they wouldn't have otherwise been able to 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 access in terms of treatment for themselves let alone also servicing the the, the greater thing am i kind of on the same page absolutely 100 percent. so um obviously there are a range of different trials that are being run at any given time but uh, you know um the stories that keep us motivated at Arima, and certainly for myself personally um as somebody who's worked in tech for a long time and and you know my mum often has asked me what are you doing for a living i don't quite understand it you know i building technology solutions. It's kind of hard to explain to mum. But this one was really easy to explain to her. I said, we're we're using technology to improve the um, pathways to participation in clinical research uh, and clinical trials because we think we know that um, there are treatments out there that are viable that aren't getting to the shelves or aren't getting to patients or aren't getting to market because of this challenge. And mum told me um, a story. She immediately had a, a story that she relayed to me. She said, we're from Tasmania, my family from Tasmania. And she said, oh, we knew a doctor friend in Tasmania and he had a particular form of um, a respiratory cancer, lung cancer. He was diagnosed with terminal condition, right? There's no cure for this condition. Um, and in fact, so certain were they that his life insurance paid out. Right, so sometimes so yeah. life insurance pay out a little in advance when it's a terminal condition, so you can have you know the last trip with the family and and, and yeah. so on. And he did all of that. He went to Paris with his family. In the intervening time, he joined a clinical trial um, with a new treatment for his particular type of cancer, and he's still alive today. Wow! Yeah. So and she good. relayed that story to me immediately. So there's a human part to this, mm. um, and it's it's um, as you say, it really has a couple of pieces to it. One is. Yes, advancing the knowledge of all of these different treatments, of all this. Every single item that you see in a pharmacy shelf has been through a clinical trial to make sure yeah. it's safe and effective um, and the side effects are known, counterindicators are known before it gets anywhere near a shelf. But also the, the very direct personal impact it can have on people with conditions who are unresponsive to current treatments or for which there are no current treatments yeah. and their personal journeys. And we see that pretty regularly um, had one the other day, you know, a, a lady saying, um, you know, I've had a particular type of pain for uh, my basically my entire life. I got on this trial and now I've got pain relief for the first time. Sure. And we have to be careful because she's unblinding the trial. But, <laughs> but it's a fantastic story um, uh, to hear. So, yeah, there's a very personal element to this. And we know that tech alone doesn't solve this problem, right? Yes. It's human plus tech that's going to that's gonna resolve this. Yeah, and actually and building on that, on that particular problem around... Uh, I guess discoverability or recruitment of of people onto trials. On on one side, there's this element of education and awareness around what what a clinical trial is. But you also need to find people too. Like there there are people who are looking for for clinical trials and can't come across them for for whatever way. What are the typical ways you find that that are effective in terms of um, discovering? eligible people for these clinical trials? Yeah, so we have a range of different pathways. So uh, clinical trial recruitment traditionally has been a, um, a fairly stone age sort of art, um, particularly when you're relying on clinical trial sites. So individual sites or independent sites who are absolutely fantastic at conducting clinical research. That's what they're there for. Mm. That's why they've gone into the industry is to um, to deliver these clinical uh, research projects, these clinical trials um, with the public. Um, but the one part that they probably didn't sign up for, and if you speak to sites, they, they, they don't particularly like it either, is, is the recruitment side of things. 
Um, and I have done a lot of hiring in my time, so I can I can feel their pain and I, I empathize with them because when you're looking for a new person to join your team, um, there is a, you know, you have to cast quite a wide net and then you do a lot of filtering to through CVs and other signals to get down mm-hmm. to a set of people that you then interview. And the whole way along, you're kind of um, disqualifying people, right, with, with the hope that you end up with a good um, candidate. Uh, but for every person you're disqualified, that's a lot of time and effort that you put in and there's literally zero outcome, right? You have absolutely no result at the end of all of that time and effort. And that's how sites think of it. Um, uh, and in some cases, they can go through tremendous amounts of uh, just struggle to even identify these people. And even if they are identified as potential candidates, as you said earlier, there's a, a strict eligibility criteria. Often the patient themselves don't know or the prospective participant themselves don't even know what those eligibility criteria are or don't understand them. Um, you get candidates who say, yes, I have condition X, but no, they actually have condition Y, which sounds very similar to condition X, but isn't. Um, so we, we had one site I was speaking to recently who said, we're, we're running a trial and the sponsor provided us with 300 um, potential candidates immediately. And we thought, fantastic, brilliant. We're going to, uh, enrollment's not going to be an issue. They didn't enroll a single person wow. from that, that, that list of 300. There are um, fairly traditional ways of, of recruiting and, and everything from posters up behind toilet doors in, in hospitals, that absolutely happens. Uh, advertisements in local papers, um, flyers handed out in shopping centres, um, you know, there's a lot of this kind of localised recruitment that's being done. With um, new digital technology, now there's digital social media and uh, there's a broader reach and ability to target that advertising to reach people who are likely to be candidates. Um, that can be effective for, for some trials, particularly where the condition is well known um, or, or known to the public. Um, so, for example, um, women's health, uh, in some cases, there's, there's good responses um, yeah. through that channel. Uh, then other channels we are looking at and are engaged with are through primary care, for example. In some cases, you can reach specialists who have a particular interest in the therapeutic area that you're recruiting in as well. Um, pharmacy, other health tech partners uh, as well. Um, there's a, a lot of different, it has to be a multifaceted approach, we found. Just putting all of your um, uh, eggs in the basket of digital marketing, um, it's, it's not sufficient anymore. Um, it, yeah. it used to be a very traditional approach, this kind of paper-based local recruitment. Now it's got to be broader, it's got to be digitized, and it's got to be multifaceted. Do you find as well that there are particular champion clinicians who might be potentially specialists that would be strong advocates, probably connected to the research in some way or another, even just through professionally, become one of the biggest referral pathways. But that's that's great, but it's just also localized to whoever physically they might, you know, see and the the clinical would know. But something more scalable, yeah, sure, like the social media side, that's that's one way. I'm quite interested also in the um uh, connecting with other technologies too, with, with other technology providers. Tell me a little bit more oh. about what that what that thing looks like. Yeah, sure. So uh, let me let me touch just quickly on on your comment there around um, referring clinicians in a specialist area. So yes, absolutely, that's that's a good channel, um, as you say, because they have an interest and they're likely to probably be across research in their um, in their area. Uh, but really, when you're looking for clinical trial um, participants. You're looking for two things. The first one is eligibility. So does the person have the required inclusion, exclusion matching? But the second is motivation. 
And when you go to um, referrals from clinicians specifically, you get a very good match on eligibility, right? So you can search EMR records, for example, and say, oh, yes, this person definitely has a condition that we're looking for. But you get zero signal on motivation, right? Absolutely none. So mm. you end up with a list of people um, and you then contact those people and your conversion rate is kind of unknown. It can, it can be quite high. It can be quite low. Uh, and so really um, the physician in the loop is the the um, piece there that we focus on is when a physician is involved in recommending a trial or bringing that trial information through to the participant, the likelihood that they become motivated to actually consider it as an option increases to about 75 80%. They'll actually think about it. Um, so, yeah, but like you say, it's quite localized, small practices with small patient numbers. So, um, that's that's difficult to, to scale. That motivation um, point's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah, that's totally, that makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, whereas, whereas um, on the flip side, social media, you get a very high motivation yeah. um, indicator because they've responded to the ad, they've clicked through, they've gone to a registration page, they've shared some information. So, they're very motivated. Now, are they, they might not be eligible, yeah. Exactly. So, you're, you're trying to solve both pieces of that, uh, mm. of that puzzle. So in terms of uh, partnerships with health tech organizations, so um, again, we're taking kind of an innovative uh, view of this. There are a lot of health tech organizations that are interacting with the public and with patients. Uh, we, we've got to be careful about calling them patients because in some clinical trials, they're not patients, they're healthy volunteers and that's yeah. not patients. But I, if I use the word patients, uh, it's interchangeable. So participants, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are a lot of health tech organizations that are interacting with prospective participants uh, or candidates, and they will have different signals and different information on that eligibility and motivation driver, depending on what kind of interaction that they're having with those participants. So you just mentioned specialists. There'll be a bunch of information in the EMR that gives us very high eligibility um, uh, signal, but a very low motivation signal. Um, there are a lot of others that are interacting. So take even um, appointment booking uh, providers, for example, right? When you're booking an appointment with your GP, um, some of those appointment uh, providers ask you why you're booking this appointment, right? Yep. And so they will have some information from that patient about why they're going to visit their GP or, or the clinician that they're going to speak with. And with that signal, you, can, you could use that signal to then present a person with a link to a potential clinical trial that's relevant to the thing that they're booking for. And that's a moment in time where they're thinking about the future of their care. They're taking the next step in their, their health journey. And they may think, gee, a clinical trial, you know, I, I'm going back to the GP for the 10th time trying to solve this problem. Um, maybe a clinical trial is right for me, you know. Yeah. And so even booking providers could give you a signal that might say, if this person has gone back for the 10th time to solve this chronic condition, they might have a high motivation to seek an alternative treatment. And we know the condition to some degree. And so we can we can um, encourage them to participate at that level. And we're looking at a range of different technology partners um, for that purpose. So where can we get a signal that makes sense for us to potentially bring the option of clinical research to the participant uh, at the at point of care or point of interaction with the health system? Yeah, absolutely. It's about finding that fine balance between you've got this data and the information about a particular candidate, but with great data comes great. Let's keep keep the Marvel theme going, shall we? With great data comes great responsibility. <laughs> Uncle Ben from Spider Man ensuring that that trust and sovereignty of that that data as well, and it's it's all done for the right reasons in terms oh. of finding these candidates for these important trials. But yeah, it's a um, yeah. yeah, interesting one to solve and, and one that um, there's a lot of potential there. Oh. Um, I think about the, the need in Australia, and that's one thing, but 
you know, we've, we've got 25 million people here in Australia and there's a lot of other people in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, are, are you looking at these problems in outside of our borders as well? We already, we're already in international markets, so we're in ANZ. Um, we, we've had an office in Singapore um, as well. Uh, and we have looked at Southeast Asia, but also South Africa. So we have some links into South Africa as well. Uh, but the core place, obviously, for research uh, is the USA. So as you say, if you if you put Australia on the list of states in the United States, you made Australia the 51st state. Oh, is that right? Be, yeah, I think we'd be the ninth largest state yeah. in, in, in America, right? Um, That's a good one. I don't have the, yeah, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but roughly it's something like 60% of clinical research is conducted in the US, 30% in Europe, and then 10% you know, across the rest of the world combined. Yeah. It's a absolutely a hub and a nexus for, for clinical research. Yeah. And we have been working with a lot of multinationals. Now, the reason they come to Australia is a couple of things. Um, first, we have a, uh, a pretty good health system. Um, we ha have a very uh, sort of tech-savvy population as well. Um, we're, you know, a stable Western democracy. We're a great ally of the US as well. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why some research being conducted in Australia is a good idea. On top of which, um, the Australian government very kindly offers a 43-odd percent um, tax rebate for R&D conducted in Australia. So essentially, you can get your research done uh, half price uh, if you do it in Australia. And there's some caps on that that mean that um, it tends to be most applicable to phase one and two clinical research. Um, but there's a very robust um, uh, tax rebate process in place that makes Australia a very attractive destination. Uh, not to mention that our ethics committees, um, which are uh, the equivalent of IRBs in, in the USA, essentially this is, a, this is the group that oversees all clinical research and makes sure it's done according to good clinical practice and very other, various other standards. And they ensure that the standards are appropriate then for the TGA, uh, sorry, the FDA in the USA will accept um, research results conducted in Australia. Um, they're very, uh, the, the processes that they have in place are recognised as being very friendly to the conduct of research um, in, in Australia. So you get this regulatory structure that's um, very conducive to conducting research, you get these tax advantages. Australia is a good destination. Uh, and so you get all these multinationals come to Australia and we work with a lot of them um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, pain and hard work to get um, through the vendor qualification process and to pass various audits and to make sure you're adhering to certain standards. Uh, but then we have we end up with um, global agreements with these um, firms and they then bring us into the US. So we have had uh, some of those firms do exactly that. We love what you've done in Australia. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Great results. Please come help us with a similar um, problem in the US or we don't like our vendor in the US. Can you bring um, that that solution to us in the US as well. Think about the, the problems that you're solving now and, and how that's all evolved and grown since the last time we spoke on the podcast a couple of years ago to oh. now. Oh. What What's next? What, what are you kind of focusing on where, where your priorities at for um, the future for agreement? Sure. So uh, as you say, it's been a great journey from when we started to where we are today. So our, um, our goal was really to to look at Australia as kind of the proving ground for the, the solutions that we've been putting together. So um, one of the, the challenges is the fragmentation of our industry. Yeah. And so we built technology and now we've deployed that technology to over 60% of um, commercial trial sites in Australia have been enrolled on our, our software platform. So 
when um, trials are being uh, stood up in Australia, you know, we can very, very quickly provide access for recruitment purposes to our tech. And, and that's a, um, you know, that, that provides that ubiquity um, and pace, um, which is so important to, to those organisations. Um, in terms of looking to the future, what that means is more of that. So more ubiquity, mm -hmm. more ubiquity um, gets us uh, better results in just a categorically different fashion than just incremental benefits of, of adding sites. Um, ubiquity has its own benefits. So more ubiquity, enrolling more sites um, and listening to sites as well. Um, we know that uh, when we began, there weren't a lot of technologies in this space. Now there is, there's, there's a Quite a lot of technology being brought to sites and you hear sites talk about tech overload right so i have to context switch and there's a whole bunch of different texts that i've got to understand and know and get trained on every time there's a new trial so we're really thinking about how do we build integrations how do we homogenize that and take all that burden away from sites so we're talking to a lot of tech partners about integration how do we streamline that? How do we reduce the copy and paste admin burden on, on sites, which is um, uh, a lot of what they cope with today? Yeah. Um, the second thing that we're thinking about is how do we uh, build those relationships with the tech partners that I talked about earlier? So looking for those novel channels to participants where we think that we can get a good, strong signal that they're likely to be eligible and they're likely to be motivated and bringing those to the research organisations who are looking for those people. Yeah. Um, so building all of those novel channels that haven't been explored and haven't been exploited yet. The third piece is we're looking at how do we help overcome some of the practical challenges of clinical research as well. So technology, I think, as I said, only gets you so far. At some point, the person has to travel to a bricks and mortar site, you know, to, to undergo participation. Can we use technology to overcome that? You know, COVID uh, brought in the, the world of telehealth. You know, we finally managed to, um, to get the regulators to agree that that was something in 2023 that could be considered what an excellent step it was uh, and can that same idea be applied to clinical research are there yeah. um, elements of the clinical trial process that can be done virtually or can be done remotely or can be done in a mobile fashion so actually taking the trial to people's homes that was the other thing that covid um, introduced to us was this expectation that everything would come to our our yeah. home right um, so we're looking at that and we have some, um, some operational and technology pieces that, um, that support that approach. Uh, and the last thing is going to the US. So yeah, that's our other big step is to, is we have a beachhead there now, expanding that beachhead and, and growing it, the market into the US. I mean, that, that's, that's an all encompassing plan that'll keep you in pl plenty to cover between now and when we next check in on the show. But I, I but yeah. I did want to highlight too, cause we spent a good chunk of time talking about that, um, recruitment stage for trials but as you pointed out in that last element too that's one step in the the challenge and it's the actual then the, the trial well design and delivery and all the other kind of bits in between to 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 get some um, that could be improved to ultimately yeah. in, in you know improve the rate of the research comes through and improve patient outcomes so yeah um, all the right there's, reasons there's, you're right that there's a whole bunch of other elements around recruitment um like in fact if we can get good visibility into just understanding why people during that recruitment process as a good example are just being disqualified or are not agreeing to continue with their um, candidacy uh, you can actually make adjustments then to the trial design to capture a larger cohort to make it more likely you're you're going to be successful and so that 
that feedback loop is is important, um, and and we've seen that happen where we we're able to provide live data on hey, you're actually excluding a lot of people based on this criteria. Is there any change that you could make to those trial outcomes that you're trying to drive um, that would potentially allow those people to be included or you could you know, stand up another arm of the trial? Um, and, and those changes can be made when you have that information to hand, which is something that previously was very difficult to get. Um, and then retention is the other big piece. There are, there are, there's a, a big concern about patients who say, yes, I'd love to be involved. And there's a lot of time and effort that goes into consenting them and bringing them into the trial. And then they decide for whatever reason, um, uh, you know, at some point and, and which completely they're entitled to do. They absolutely can withdraw at any time. But could we be doing better with engaging them and providing them with support or providing them with information or um, giving them visibility of what's coming next? Um, you know, so that they maintain that motivation throughout the, the course of the trial. And again, there's a place for technology to play in that, connecting people to others who are in trials, for example, so you have a kind of a community of support. Um, we think that there's a place uh, for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, just keeping that communication up and the expectation setting and the alignment, and that's where half of it falls down, right? So there's so much opportunity for technology to play a role. Look, hmm. Ben, I'll, I'll put the details for Avrima in the show notes of this episode. You've got the presence on the Talking Health Tech website. For someone that's listening to the podcast that might be interested in either learning more around the clinical trial side or just generally wanting to get a bit more immersed in the space, where could they go? Uh, yeah, Pete, um, obviously you can come to our website, avrima.com.au. Um, we're interested in hearing from those tech partners who are in the space and interacting with um, patients and and could potentially provide a channel for people to become aware of and be educated in clinical trials as a potential care option or just an interest to participate in general. So tech partners that are interacting with um, patients. And obviously, if you're a person yourself who has a, a condition that you're um, looking for an, uh, you know, a new treatment for, or you're just interested in participating in um, clinical research, you can come to the Avrima website, you can sign up. We have a range of different trials and we will communicate with you. Our lovely team will uh, reach out to you and call you and speak to you uh, and see what you're interested in doing. So um, yeah, we'd love to speak to anybody who has an interest of that kind. We'll uh, have to check in again on the podcast soon to to see how things have progressed. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, thanks, Pete. It's been uh, excellent to talk to you. Cheers. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks, and I'll even buy your coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey and have your say. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.